Right, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 22? As we are working our way through this book, almost done, we come this morning to chapter 22, which is a psalm of David. Uh, David is known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. In fact, he's actually called that in chapter 23, verse 1. Uh, David wrote half the psalms in the book of Psalms. We're not really sure when David wrote the psalm that became chapter 22 of 2 Samuel and also Psalm 18, almost verbatim. It seems likely that this psalm was written sometime after David had become king over the entire nation. We saw that in chapter 5 and sometime before he sinned with Bathsheba as we saw in chapter 11. I say that because the language seems to be that of a man who is the leader of a nation and is fighting many enemies that are trying to bring him down. Also, he could never have written, I don't think, uh, this psalm after the incident with Bathsheba, especially when you look at verses 21 to 24, where David says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his judgments were before me. And as for uh, his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from iniquity. You get the idea. Before David sinned with Bathsheba, that was kind of the flavor of his uh, prayers and his psalms, that God should bless him based on his goodness. After he sinned with Bathsheba, not so much. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so you know, that's where we always should start. But some would argue, based on the opening verse, that David wrote this psalm early in his life while Saul was still alive. Verse 1 tells us, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And they say, well, that proves he wrote this early in his life while Saul was still alive. Well, um, it just could be a reference to the fact that the day had finally come when God fulfilled to David his promise in making him king over all the nation. Uh, for many years, his enemies, like the Philistines, tried to take him out. Saul, for many years, tried to kill him to keep him from becoming king. And so today, God has delivered me from all of that and has made me king as he has promised, is the idea, at least the way I see it. Now, I'm not going to read the whole psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. You can read it on your own. Uh, I was blessed just reading it over and over again as I formulated a, just a very simple outline. The first main point I have in my notes is the Lord worthy of praise. Verse 2, and he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge. Verse 4, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And this is how David introduces this psalm. This is the introduction. As David opens up by stating some of the themes that he is going to be elaborating on in the verses that will follow. He's talking about the Lord, my rock, a sure foundation for life is the idea. He's my fortress, a place of refuge and safety. He's my deliverer, the one who rescues from harm, etc. David is saying that because of who God is and because of his faithfulness in protecting his children and keeping his promises and providing all that we need in life for these reasons and so much more, God is worthy to be praised. And by the way, this is a great way to start your prayers by reminding yourself of how great and faithful and kind and 
powerful your God is. I love the way David spoke of this in Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Remember he said, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. He's talking about going into the tabernacle area David was talking about, into the presence of God. And you enter into the presence of God with thanksgiving and praise, for the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever, and His faithfulness continues to each generation. That's a great way to enter into God's presence. And let me just say this, when you start your prayers by reminding yourself of how great God is, doesn't it put your problems in perspective? No matter how big the problem is, well, our God is bigger still to solve the problem. Remember when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, threatened the disciples, the apostles, that they were not to preach anymore in Jesus' name, otherwise it would be bad for them. Okay, And they went home to the other apostles, and they had a prayer meeting, the other disciples. And here's how they began in Acts 4.24, O Lord God, you who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that is in them. That's a good way to start your prayer. You know, let's get our eyes focused on God, His greatness, His power, because it makes our problems small by comparison. So it's a good way to start your prayer. Uh, just the Lord worthy of praise. Number two, the Lord awesome in power. Verse 8, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also, and came down with darkness under his feet. Verse 14, the Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. Here, David describes the awesome power of God. Now, if you read the Psalms, you'll find this theme woven throughout the Psalms. How powerful God is. We talk about the love of God. Our God's a God of... In fact, our God doesn't just love a lot. He is love, right? 1 John 4 tells us God is love. But if God has no power... If he's limited, well, he might love us as his children, but if he's not strong enough to help us, it's not going to do us much good, right? I remember reading a story, a true story about a father who ran out to get some gas or some milk, and when he came back, his house was engulfed in flames. His four kids were stuck in the house. He tried his best. He broke windows to try to get in. The heat was so intense, he couldn't get in. He wanted with all, he had burned, he got cut. He wanted so badly to save his kids, he didn't have the power. His kids died in that fire. He loved his kids, he just wasn't strong enough to save his kids. See, that's not true with our God. Our God is awesome in power. Nothing is hard. Didn't he say this? Is there anything hard for me? Of course not. Doesn't that bring you a lot of comfort, no matter what you're going through, that you know your God is stronger than any problem, bigger than any crisis? He always has the strength to meet your needs, to deliver you from whatever. Our God is awesome in power. And here, David is personalizing it and saying basically that, Lord, you know, when I was in trouble, when my enemies were against me, Lord, you, you, you shook heaven and earth to come to help me. I love that. One commentator said, and I quote, What is most impressive is the magnificent way the psalmist describes God rising from his throne in heaven in response to his servant's cry, parting the clouds and descending to fight the king's battles, accompanied by earthquakes, thunder, storms, and lightning. And guys, once again, if we don't continually remind ourselves 
of the power of our God. Listen, we are going to become overwhelmed by our problems and we will lose heart. You know, David said in Psalm 27 something we should all remember. He said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, right here on earth. He said, therefore, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Don't panic. Don't fret. Don't run around trying to work it out. The idea behind wait is stand still and see that God is God. He can take care of it. We get so worked up. We, we get so anxious, so worried. We're losing sleep. We're, we're churning out enough acid to burn a hole in the hull of the ship because we're so scared, so worried, whatever it is. And David had learned over the course of his life, you know, Lord, you've been there for me so many times in the past. You have helped me in so many situations where I thought it was over. Lord, I just believe you're going to take care of me in this situation. I love what Moses sang. Remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they're now in the wilderness. God's leading them, right? And in the meantime, Pharaoh kind of comes to his senses in a sense and says, what have I done? I've let our workforce go, cheap labor. Get the armies, let's go. We've got to get these people back. So they start pursuing Israel. Well, God's leading them, lead them, led them into a trap, basically, where now the Red Sea is in front of them. The approaching Egyptian army is behind them. The people are terrified, cry out, uh, wanting to kill Moses as if it was his fault. He's just following the pillar of cloud and fire. God's leading. And he cries out to God, Moses does, and God says, just lift your hand with the staff, the rod of God in it, and Moses does, and the sea is parted. His people go through on dry ground, and as the Egyptians try to follow, God closes up the waters and drowns the Egyptian army. And Moses was so overwhelmed by the power and the goodness of God, he writes the song of Moses in Exodus 15, verse 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? Listen, fearful in praises, doing wonders. And he's saying, he's saying, God, you have just taught us it doesn't matter if our back is up against the wall. It doesn't matter if there is no human way out of this crisis. You have just taught us that you're the God who makes a way where there is no way. And whatever you're going through, if you've come to a point and you're at a point that says there's no way out, I've exhausted all my avenues of, of, of action, uh, all my resources are gone, you're at a very blessed point because, as Paul said, when you're weak, then you're what? Strong. Don't you know God leads us into these traps? Don't you know that God sometimes puts our back up against the wall where the news is so awful and there's no human way around it? You know why he does that many times? Because he wants us to stand still and know that he is God. Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. He's beyond us finding out. I mean, he's so vast, so great, right? Psalm 147, verse 1, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Let me stop and say this. There is power in praise. There's power in praise. You know why? Well, first of all, it gets our eyes off of our problem and onto God. And that brings peace. Don't you know when your eyes on the shepherd, the wolves can't really terrify you? When your eyes on the shepherd, you get nothing to worry about. We get our eyes on God off the problem, it brings, first of all, peace, but it also strengthens our faith. Now, you know, there are those today who are teaching that faith is a force. 
In the positive confession movement, you have many who are teaching that faith is a force. And if you just understand how it works, it works like the laws of gravity or any of the other force. There are certain principles, and if you send me $49.95, I'll give you my uh, whole teaching on how you can learn the, how faith works, all the little steps to work, manipulate faith. And once you know how to manipulate the force called faith, you can then point it at God and write your own ticket with God. Basically, God becomes your servant. You're the master. You're in the driver's seat because you know what? You have mastered the laws of faith. Guys, faith is nothing. Faith is nothing unless it's attached to the right object. If it's not attached to God Almighty, it's as worthless as anything in this world. I can believe with all my heart in something of, you know, I mean, for many years with all our hearts, we believed the Cubs were going to be winners. Well, that finally came through, but it took 108 years. I wasn't around that whole time, but, you know, I feel like it sometimes. But there's a lot of things as people we put our faith in, but they're not attached to God, right? So it's a shot in the dark. It's a hope so kind of thing. When you have faith in God, it's never a hope so kind of faith. It's a no so kind of faith. Because God has given us many great and precious promises. And as long as we have faith in the promises God has given us, God will bring them to the past. Faith by itself is worthless. It's a conduit. I'm not, I shouldn't say it's worthless. It is a conduit. But by itself, it's like a power cord, okay? A power cord that's attached at one end to something very powerful, like some kind of a power tool that can do great work. But it's got to be plugged into a power outlet, right? I mean, God has equipped us with the Holy Spirit. We have great potential. But if we're not in fellowship with God, if we're not plugged into the Lord, in other words, we're wanting God's power to flow through our lives for His glory, not our own. If that's our motive and we have faith in God, we want to be used by God, and so we're daily in fellowship with God, plugged into Him, then His power will flow through our faith into our lives, and He will accomplish great things through us. But by itself, I mean, that cord is powerless by itself. Look, when others come against you, or when you're going through a difficult circumstance and it's got you down. Respond by spending time in God's presence, praising Him. You know, praise is a manifestation of faith. Faith connects us to God, allows the power of God to flow through our lives, as we just said. Spend some time praising the Lord. Listen to me. Fear will diminish, faith will increase, and God's power will begin to flow. I have seen it in my own life many times. When I've been facing a circumstance that was bigger than me, I felt the pressure, I felt all kinds of things, and I would have to just take a time away, go somewhere, put on some praise music, just focus my attention on God. It just had a way of refocusing me. What am I worried about? God's on the throne. I'm serving Him. It's not my problem how God's going to work this out. It's His problem. He's a very big God. He can take care of it. What am I worried about? Why am I taking it on my shoulders? We do that, though, don't we? We take things on our shoulders, and all the while we're getting crushed by the weight of these worries and things and God is saying why are you doing that didn't I say cast all your cares upon me because I care about you I'll take care of it trust me all right number three the Lord helper of the helpless verse 17 he sent from above he took me he drew me out of many waters he delivered me from my strong enemy from those who hated me for they were too strong for me they confronted me in the day of my calamity, 
but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. I love verse 17. He said, he drew me out of many waters. In that context, the waters were the waters of adversity. You'll find that as a recurring uh, idiom in David's writings. The waters of adversity, the waters of trouble. In David's case, many times, people were trying to kill him. And God literally drew David out of a situation where he was going to die. Look, what David is literally saying is, he made a Moses out of me. He made a Moses of me. The name Moses means to draw out and was the name that was given to him by Pharaoh's daughter who saved him by drawing him out of the Nile River. You remember how that Pharaoh had passed an edict. Any male children born were to be drowned in the Nile. But God had spoken to Moses' parents that he had a special plan for this child. So they kept Moses, they kept the child for three months in secret, of course. And when he was three months old, he was a little getting a little too old now to hide. So by faith, they took a little basket and they rubbed pitch on the bottom to seal it and had a little lid. They put Moses, the baby Moses, in this little ark with a blanket and all and, and put the top, and they sailed it down the Nile knowing that Pharaoh's daughter always bathed in the morning in the Nile River. And so here she's out bathing and here comes the ark and all of a sudden she hears a baby crying. She walks over and sees this little ark, opens the lid and it says Moses was a beautiful child. And so her heart melted. It's one of the Hebrew children. Of course, Moses' sister is standing right there to see what was going to go on. She runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, I call one of the Hebrew midwives to nurse the child for you. Goes and gets her mom. <laughs> now, Moses' mom is getting paid to take care of and nurse her own son. I love God. I... <laughs> Pharaoh says, all the, all the male Hebrew children are to be killed. Now he's got one living in his own palace. He's paying to support this child, grows up and so on. I love the way the Lord works things out. But she drew him out of the waters of death. And guys, let me just say this to you. God would use his name for the rest of his life to remind him that it was really God who had drawn him out of death for a purpose. And that purpose was to deliver his people out of Egypt. Guys, in that regard, think about this. We are all Moses. We are all Moses. Those who have been drawn out of death, Ephesians 2, 1. For at one time we were all dead in trespasses and sins. But God, through the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, drew us out of death to give us a life of purpose. And what was that purpose? Well, to deliver others out of the bondage of the devil and the world, which, of, of course, which Pharaoh and Egypt represented. They were a type. Pharaoh was a type of Satan. Egypt was a type of the world. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit does these things, right? He drew us out of death, gave us life to give us purpose, and that was to send us back into the world to deliver others out of the bondage of slavery to the devil, to this world system. In fact, the word church is the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means an assembly of called out ones, or for our terminology this morning, an assembly of drawn out ones, those who have been drawn out of the world for a divine purpose, we call it the Great Commission, don't we? Go into all the world and preach the good news to every person because this is what will set men and women free. But here, guys, in a practical, personal sense, David is acknowledging how God was his helper. If you read the passage that we're looking at, the uh, section we're looking at, David is acknowledging that God 
was his helper when he, David, was helpless against his enemies. It kind of reminds me, in a sense, of what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room the night before he went to the cross. Turn to John 14. You remember that his disciples and the Lord were celebrating the Passover. This is the night before he went to the cross. He basically opens up the evening with a teaching that is he actually drops a bombshell on them. He said, I'm going away. Immediately, fear gripped their hearts. What do you mean you're going away? We can't make it without you, Lord. I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't follow me. Not yet. I'll come back for you. But right now, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. Just like I was alongside of you these three and a half years, I was your helper. I'm going to ascend to the Father, and I'm going to pray the Father send you another helper, the Spirit of Truth, who will not just come alongside of you, he will come what? In you. He will be your strength. I'm sending you out into all the world to preach the gospel. To every person, I'm sure they were thinking, Lord, we're simple Galileans. We're fishermen. You're sending us out into all the world, Rome, Athens, Alexandria, the, the, the places of culture and learning and sophistication. You're sending us as simple fishermen out to minister the gospel to, to people like this. There's no way we can do that. They're never going to want to listen to us. He said, I'm not going to send you out to do this work in your own strength. I'm going to send you out in the power of my spirit. He will do the work through you. God has a great work for us to do as his church. But at no time did he ever say we were to do it in our own strength. The church seems to have forgotten that and is trying very hard to do the work of God in the energy of the flesh. And guess what? Uh, there are many big churches filled with many thousands of people. But as Paul said in the last days, many would not want to hear sound doctrine, but would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears. And so there's a lot of man-pleasing ear ticklers out there, and they have big churches. Well, sure, if you tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear, you're going to have a big church for the most part. And believe me, not all big churches are bad. Not all small churches are good, by the way. I'm just speaking in general terms in these last days. As Tozer said, if we took the work of the Holy Spirit out of the early church, 90% of what they were doing would have come to a stop. If we take the Holy Spirit out of today's church, 10% of what is being done will come to a stop. We're trying to do the work of God in the energy of our flesh, and the only way you can build a big church in the flesh is to promise people fleshly things. Big cars, fancy houses... All kinds of goodies. That's the only way you can do it. You have to appeal to the flesh to build your church. I don't want a fleshly church. I'd rather have a church of 100 on-fire Christians than uh, a church of 10,000 lukewarm pew-sitters. I mean, you know, it's not about how many faces or how many bodies we can stuff into this room. It's how many people are going to make a difference for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want. So, you know, God it will be our, our helper, is our helper. Uh, the fourth point. In my outline, the Lord merciful and just. Verse 26, with the merciful you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man you will show yourself blameless. With the pure you will show yourself pure. With the devious you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. Now guys, there are passages in the Bible where you read them at a quick glance and you read them and go, okay, yeah, I got that, I'll move on. But then they kind of haunt you. And as you think about them over and over again, parables are famous for this. Parables, you, know, you, you read it and go, oh, yeah, I got that. But then the more you think about it, the more you're like, what? Uh, 
but this passage is, passage is kind of like that for me. You know, you read it, first glance, you think, okay, I know what he's talking about. But then the more you read it, it begins to trouble you. The simplest interpretation is that God becomes to and does for people what they are and do to others. And that's pretty easy when it comes to statements uh, that we just read, like, with the merciful, you'll show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you'll show yourself blameless. Uh, with the pure, you'll show yourself pure. Verse 28, you will save the humble people. And he's talking about saving from their enemies. But the, your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. And that, that seems pretty straightforward, right? God deals with people according to how they live their lives and treat others. It's what some have called the law of reciprocity. Or, biblically put, you will reap what you sow. We understand that. Author Warren Worsby said, and I quote, The Lord never violates his own attributes. God deals with people according to their attitudes and their actions. David was merciful to Saul and spared his life on at least two occasions, and the Lord was merciful to David. Blessed are, Jesus would say later on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. David was, was faithful to the Lord, and the Lord was faithful to him. David was upright. He was single-hearted when it came to serving God. He was not sinless, no man or woman on earth is. But he was blameless in his motives and loyal to the Lord. In that sense, his heart was pure. And as Jesus would go on to say in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so again, guys, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, I mean, how you act toward others, how you live your life, God will show that in many ways to you, okay? But the last part of verse 27 becomes a problem. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. Now, the word Hebrew word for devious in the New King James is a word that means immoral or perverted. But that can't, you know, we can't apply that to God. We can't say, you know, well, to the immoral and perverted, God will show himself immoral and perverted. That's not true. And that has a lot of commentators kind of baffled. And some of your translations, well, it's, I, I pulled up every translation I had, and some of them were kind of similar. Some of them went to great lengths to try to explain this way and, and, and re, rephrase it. Look, the Hebrew word actually comes from a root that means twisted twisted i think the niv captures best what david is literally saying but to the crooked you show yourself shrewd is the idea i believe that what david is saying is that with those who are listen merciful and blameless and pure in their dealings with others god will treat them the same way didn't james basically say this in james chapter 2 for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy Mercy triumphs over judgment. And he's talking not in ultimate positional terms. In other words, if you're merciful to people, you're not going to not go to hell if you don't receive Christ. He's talking about in practical terms. In other words, if you're merciful to people in your dealings, if you're kind and gracious, and you do something worthy of God, you know, kind of bringing the hammer down and, and really disciplining you in a very severe way, because of the way you've treated others, God will cut you slack, I'm convinced. I believe that's what James is saying. I believe that's what David is saying. That how you are to others, in a practical sense, God will respond that way to you. But to those who are twisted or crooked in their dealings with others, God will be even shrewder. Now, I wrote that in my notes and my spell check didn't flag it, so I think that is a word. He's, he's shrewder. More shrewd, whatever. Of course, not in a sinful way. God never does anything sinful. 
But boy, can the Lord turn the tables on us, can he? We're so smart, aren't we? You know? And we cloak everything in such pious terms. It's always for the greater good. We're always, you know, just really, you know, doing it for God and so on, right? Um, God knows the heart. And oftentimes, if we're actually doing things to kind of, you know, take advantage of people that we might benefit, God knows that. He has a way of kind of turning the tables, doesn't he? So that we kind of get what we're trying to give to others. In other words, we're trying to cheat them somehow. It works out where we're cheated. I think of old Uncle Laban, okay? <laughs> Jacob's uncle and then became his father-in-law. Now, Jacob's name means schemer, conniver, you know, that heel catcher. You know. He met his match in old Uncle Laban, who was the king of connivers. And if you read the story, because they spent 20 years together, uh, Jacob spent 20 years serving his father-in-law, and this guy tried to cheat him every which way he could, but every time he tried to cheat Jacob, God worked it out where, you know, the tables were turned and Jacob prospered. You know, I take great comfort in the verse. Remember when Joseph was sold by his brothers out of envy into slavery? He was a just man. He was a free man. But they sold him into slavery, and they thought that's the end of him. He winds up in Egypt, and through a set of circumstances you can read about in Genesis uh, 37 through the end of the book, he winds up becoming prime minister. There's a great famine in the land. Through Joseph's wisdom, as God was leading him, he tells Pharaoh what to do, and so on and so forth. You know the story. Eventually, his brothers, because of the famine, had come to Egypt, and they had to stand before Joseph, not knowing it was Joseph. I mean, he's older now. He's got a full beard. He's wearing the royal robes of the Egyptian court. He's speaking Egyptian. They have no idea who this is. They think he's a, an Egyptian guy. And finally, he reveals himself to them, and they're terrified. He says, look, go get Dad. The famine's going to be another five years. Go get Dad. Come on down here. I'll take care of you. Y'all came down to Goshen, great pasture land. They all had sheep and flocks and everything. But when Jacob died, the brothers came to Joseph, terrified. They said, now he's going to get us. Now he's going to get us. You're waiting for Dad to die. Now, now we've had it. They come in. They fall on their faces. They plead for mercy. And Joseph was, was kind of heartbroken about that, that they doubted his love for them. And so he said, look, what you did was wrong. What you did was wrong, but God used it for good. God allowed it that I might be, come down to Egypt and be used by God to save many people from this famine. What you intended to eat for evil, God used for good. And you know what, guys? I take a lot of comfort in that because who's on the throne of my who Who owns me? Who owns you if you're a Christian? The Lord owns us. He's promised to watch over us. And if he allows evil to touch us because people are out to get us, it's only because he wants to put us in a situation where he can use us in a more powerful way for his glory. But in the end, often God turns the tables on people. They want to act crooked, perverted. You know, they're not straight. They're not honest. They're not truthful. That's okay. Spin your little web of deception. It's going to all come back on you. I've seen it many times. The fifth point I have is the Lord's strength of his people. The Lord strength of his people. Verse 29, David said, O Lord, you are my lamp. The Lord lights up my darkness. In your strength I can crush an army. With my God I can scale any wall. God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. You don't even have to have this explained, right? It's so beautiful. You just read it and absorb it. And it blesses you, right? 
He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. For, for who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock? God is my strong fortress, and he makes my way perfect. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, enabling me to stand on mountain heights. I, I just love it. I just love how David has been given the gift of God to express in writing what most of us are feeling in our hearts, but we can't express. And I just love it because I just take it in. God is our strength. He is our shield, our protector. He is our sustainer. What are we worried about? You know, we get all worked up and all worried. God is in control. God is on the throne. You know, God is on the throne. I love Isaiah 41.10, one of my favorite verses, where God is speaking to the prophet and says, Don't be afraid, for I am what? With you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. He is the strength of his people. Whenever we think we have to have strength to get through a problem or some adversity, a crisis, or even to serve God, when we fall into the trap that we have to have the strength and it's all upon us, then you know what? We will fall. And God is saying, why are you taking all that? In your, why are you trying to have the strength to do what only I can give you the strength to do? But Lord, I want to show you that I'm strong. You're not strong. And when you know you're not strong, that's when you are strong, when you're weak. And you know what? That's when you're strong. You know what? Because you're leaning on me now for my strength. And finally, the last point in our outline, the Lord, deliverer of the weak. Verse 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. God will deliver. God will bring us through it. God will lift us above our enemies, those who try to run us down or try to lie about us. God's our defender. I don't have to run around trying to defend myself. I learned that a long time ago. If I run around defending myself, God will let me. If I turn it over to him and let God be my def If I take care of my character, he'll take care of my reputation. And I'll let God defend me. A lot of times people have said horrible things about me, things that get back to me, and it's like if I was really that guy, I hate me too. But I'm not that guy. Am I perfect? By no means. But I know I'm not that guy. I mean, they're making me out to be, you know, the, the personification of evil, Satan incarnate kind of a thing. But God will deliver us from even those who come against us. I, I love Psalm 59. Verse 1 says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Deliver me from those who rise up against me. And then verse 16 and 17, But I will sing of your power. I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense. It's good to sing praises to God in the morning, isn't it? It kind of sets the tone for the whole day. If you sing praises to God, or at least read some psalms, it reminds you of all God has done for you in the past, how he's taken care of you, provided for you. Why should today be any different? Why should today be any different? I'm going to sing your praises in the morning. I'm going to sing aloud of your mercy, for you have been my defense in my refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. It's a beautiful psalm, isn't it? 
You know, this psalm, which again was a song, but this psalm of David was a song he sung, listen, after he had been delivered from his enemies and was now being blessed greatly by God as king over all of Israel. I think it's safe to say, I think I speak for everybody in this room who's a believer, I think it's safe to say that any one of us as God's people, and even some who aren't God's people, can offer him praise in times of blessing. It doesn't take a spirit-filled man or woman of God to praise God when things are going well, right? Unbelievers can do that. But what about the times we don't feel like singing songs of praise? Because there are times, listen, not of great blessing, but times of great sorrow and pain, fear, uncertainty, and even tragedy. It's easy to sing praises to God when you're experiencing in your life sunshine and blue skies. But what about times when the storm is raging and the darkness has covered you like a suffocating cloud and you just don't know where to turn? Everything looks black. Everything looks hopeless. It doesn't seem like there's anything to look forward to. This darkness has just covered you like a smothering shroud. I mean, what about the times when I'm feeling so alone or so empty or fearful? Or I'm in so much pain that I can hardly breathe. These are times some have called the dark night of the soul. What do we do then? Listen to me. Then more than ever before, you need to offer God, listen, a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15. A sacrifice of praise. You remember how God in the Old Covenant had his people bring him sacrifices for various things. And what did God say? I don't want your roadkill, okay? I want the best. So, you know, if a wolf got out somebody's lamb and chewed it up and it was on its last leg, it was ready to die, you couldn't say, well, what do we do now? The things have already to croak. Let's run it down to the temple and offer it to God quick. Because we got to offer him something. Let's do that. No, God said, I don't want that. You offer me your best. Now, I would imagine that many times people offered God the best of their flocks. That's what he mandated. But it wasn't being done with the greatest of joy i mean they had to bring their offering and it was the best of their flock and i'm sure a lot of people did it but they resented it i can imagine some people i mean you offer your prize bull to the lord i'm sure they brought it and they were crying not because they were so overjoyed to be able to give it to god but crying they had to give their best animal to god they're crying over their sacrifice a sacrifice wasn't easy because it required some kind of a, um, well, a sacrifice. That's what the idea was. There are many times we don't feel like offering God praise. We're not going through a pleasant situation where I feel like praising the Lord. That's why it's called, listen, a sacrifice of praise. You do it because God said that's what he wants, and a spirit-filled man or woman does what God has commanded, even if we don't feel like it. That's a sign of maturity. When you do what God has commanded, even though it goes against everything you want to do in the flesh, but you do it because you love the Lord, you're spirit-filled, and you know that honoring and obeying God supersedes everything else. You offer God at that time a sacrifice of praise, or what many call, listen, a song in the night. You're going through a dark period, the dark night of the soul, and yet you're still singing praises to God. Only a true child of God, filled with the Spirit, can sing a song in the night, guys. One author put it this way, he said, and I quote, It is not difficult to sing when all is going well, but often God gives a special song to one of his hurting children during the night times of their life 
believers find new joys in their nights of sorrow and despair, and they discover a greater closeness with their Lord during times of deep need. The Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation while on the barren island of Patmos. John Bunyan completed the classic Pilgrim's Progress while in the Bedford Jail. Beethoven composed his immortal Ninth Symphony while totally deaf. And Fanny Crosby, who wrote thousands of hymns to the Lord, once remarked, If I had not lost my sight, I could never have written all the hymns that God gave me. End quote. I mean, look, how could Paul and Silas, after having been beaten and thrown into a dungeon in Philippi, how could they praise God under those circumstances? In Acts 16, verses 25 and 6, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Let me just stop there. How could Paul and Silas, after having been beaten and thrown into the dungeon in Philippi, praise God under such circumstances? Listen, it was because they understood what many Christians seem to have forgotten. Praising God does not depend on our circumstances. Praising God does not depend on our circumstances. Christians do not rejoice, listen, in their circumstances necessarily. Christians rejoice in the glorious truth that the sovereign God controls every circumstance of life it's what paul said in romans 8 28 for we know that all things work together for good because we are the called of god we are his kids we're called according to his purpose and so here they were in this god-awful situation and yet they didn't let the situation dictate whether or not they were going to be joyful they kept their eyes on god they knew they had been they had been persecuted for righteousness sake they began to sing, they prayed, they were singing hymns to God. Talk about songs in the night, this was literal. It was around midnight, okay? They're singing songs to God. Why does God put his kids through adversity at times? Because he doesn't love us? No, of course not. He loves us more than we ever know. Because he wants to use us as a light in the darkness. You can talk about Jesus all day long. You can talk about how good he is, how much you love the Lord. And unbelievers will take it in, but they're going to be watching your life to see if you really believe what you claim to believe. And how they're going to do it, they're going to look, wait for the times when adversity strikes your life and how you handle it. If you handle it with joy, you're praising God, nothing's changed, God's on the throne, I love the Lord, but yeah, but your house burned down and your car blew up. I mean, how could you be joy? God's in control. I don't know what he's going to do, but God's in control. They're going to notice that. It's going to be a tremendous witness. But also, as I said earlier, praise. There's power in praise. Listen to what it went on to say in Acts 16, 26. And as they were praising God, songs in the night, suddenly there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. Let me say this to you. If you are bound by something, you're a believer, or maybe you're not a believer, and you are bound by the devil in some area, you need to give your heart to Christ because that's where all freedom begins. But once you give your heart to Jesus, you need to cultivate a heart of praise. Because, you know, sometimes these um, areas of bondage continue even into our Christian life. So what do you do? You pray. Ask God to deliver you from the alcohol or the drugs or the pornography or whatever it is. And then you worship him. You praise him. Because he's promised he will deliver you for freedom, Christ has set us free. God has promised you as his kids, he is going to give you the power to break free of every prison. He will loose every chain. You have to have faith. And what is praise a manifestation of once again? 
faith. You praise God and you keep praising God until he smashes the prison and the chains fall off and you walk out of that thing a free man or woman in Christ. You don't, you don't give in to it. You don't say, well, I've always been in bondage to this. I guess I'll always be in bondage. No, you won't. In this very room, God has delivered numerous people from alcohol, drug abuse, pornography. It is our heritage to be set free. God, for freedom, Christ has set us free, not for bondage. Can we go on living the same old life? Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, said, and I quote, Our spirits are lifted by singing. A dark dungeon can be turned into a house of worship. It takes our minds off of ourselves, our pain or fears, and it focuses our minds on the Lord. I have discovered that the more I focus on my problems, the bigger they grow, until they seem insurmountable. The more I focus on the Lord, the smaller my problems seem until it becomes insignificant. Notice the Psalms. So many of them were songs written by David in response to dire circumstances that he was facing. Notice how they focus on the Lord, his power, his greatness, his strength. He is my fortress. He is my high tower. He is my, friend, my strength. Pastor Chuck said, next time you are worried, start singing. End quote. Look, let me finish with one other thing. Some of you read Our Daily Bread, a devotional, everyday devotional. Some of you may read that every day as your devotional. Uh, it's been going on for quite a while. And uh, I found an entry into our daily bread marked uh, May 7th, 1992. Now, they may have rerun this uh, since then, but I liked it because it was called, it was titled, A Song in the Night. And I'll end with this. This is during the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, German pastor Paul Gerhardt and his family were forced to flee their home. One night, as they stayed in a small village inn, homeless and afraid, his wife broke down and cried openly in despair. To comfort her, Gerhardt reminded her of Scripture promises about God's provision and keeping. Then going out into the garden to be alone, he too broke down and wept. He felt he had come to his darkest hour. Soon afterward, Gerhardt felt the burden lifted and sensed anew the Lord's presence. Well, the Lord has a way of coming to us in our darkest hours. And all of a sudden, he felt this burden lift and he felt the Lord's presence. And he took his pen in his hand and wrote a hymn that has brought comfort to many. Part of it goes like this. Give to the winds thy fears, hope and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. God shall lift up thy head. Through waves and clouds and storms he gently clears the way. Wait thou his time, and so shall the night soon end in joyous day. The author says... It is often in our darkest times that God makes his presence known most clearly. He uses our sufferings and troubles to show us that he is our only source of strength. And when we see this truth like Pastor Gerhardt, we receive new hope. Are you facing a great trial? Take heart. Put yourself in God's hands. Wait for his timing, and he will give you a song in the night. Now, let me just say this, guys, we're done. I don't know what the future is going to bring for our country. I don't know what kind of trials, tribulations are coming. I have my feelings, which I just want to encourage you, learn how to practice songs in the night right now. And by night, I mean in the small problems. We have so much, don't we? 
Well, yeah, we have problems. Some of them are big. They're not, you, know, you, you learn you have some kind of a terrible disease. That's not a small problem. But we need right now to cultivate a heart that sings songs in the night, that lo- forces ourselves to get our eyes off of the problem and onto our God. Because if we don't, we're going to focus on the problem. Like David, we're going to lose heart. We'll be overwhelmed by the circumstance, depressed. But if we keep our eyes on God, if we cultivate that heart. It's not, you have to cultivate it. Daniel purposed in his heart he was going to live for God in Babylon. You have to purpose in your heart. You're going to walk with God in the darkness, and you're going to sing his praises because he's on the throne. He's got everything under control, and, you know, your life is in his hands. So I just encourage you to practice singing songs to God now. Start your day with praise. Go through your day with praise. When trials or adversities or problems arise, stop, pray, and then praise God for how he's going to take care of it. It'll keep your heart full of faith, and faith will bring victory. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sweet psalmist of Israel who wrote so many things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that blesses us, that encourages us, that strengthens us, because it's your word. And Lord, we just pray that you will give us grace, because we have known great blessings in America. The time may be coming when those blessings might be taken from us to a large degree. Are we going to rail against you, resent you, turn away from you? Or, like Paul and Silas, are we going to pray and then sing songs of praise in the night? Others are watching. Uh, Our witness will then shine. And Lord, our faith will grow. And we just pray, Lord, you give us the strength to be mature, spirit-filled believers who uh, keep our eyes on you in all circumstances and sing your praises at all times even when it's a sacrifice of praise. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.